Understand. 
morning and welcome to Catholics at Home, episode 37. At the start of this morning's program, we paid a beautiful tribute to the late Cardinal Anthony Sosa Fernandez, who returned to the Lord on the 28th of October. May his soul rest in peace. Good morning, everyone. Um, to those of you who have just joined us, my name is Jonathan Poon. I'm actually from the Parish of Holy Family Church, Kajang, and I will be your host for this morning's program. And today we are going to be talking about Saints Aris or the Saints Annas. So whichever way that you look at it, today's topic is going to be pretty interesting because we're going to be talking about sainthood. And we're going to get all our viewers who are joining us at this morning's program to just leave us a message. Tell us where you are actually tuning up to this program from. And perhaps you can actually share with us who is your favorite saint. Um, invite, I would like to invite all of you to also like our page, Catholics at Home, and share this post or even do a watch party with your friends and family. Catholics at Home is available on YouTube, Spotify, and of course, Facebook. Tell us what topics you'd like to see on Catholics at Home in the future. And feel free to ask any questions that you have today um, for, our, for our host or my co-host, Father Michael Chua, who will be joining us very shortly. So folks, we have patron saints for countries, ailments, lost and found, occupations, and causes. According to Catholic.org, there are over 10,000 named saints and beatee from history, the Roman metrology and orthodox sources. And we Catholics seem to be fascinated with saints, but how can we relate to their lives? And what does it take to be a saint? After all, St. Augustine did say that there is no saint without a past, no sinner without a future. In our contemporary world, the word saint appears in almost everywhere. Cities, songs, popular culture, including football teams. But how can we relate our contemporary lives to the lives of saints of the past and present? So to help us make some sense of it all, I would like to actually invite my co-host and our speaker for this morning, Father Michael Chua, who will help us shed some light on this topic. Thank you, Jonathan. Good morning to all of you. Good morning, uh, Father Michael. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you. So to start off, I think, you know, the first section we're going to talk about is basically the devotion of saints. Um, the saint, you know, is a person who is recognized as having an exceptional degree of holiness or likeness or closeness to God. So maybe it's just a fairly straightforward and easy question. What makes a saint a saint, Father? Uh, it seems to be an easy question, but I think the answer is a little bit more complicated. <laughs> Sorry for that. I think the first thing is to recognize that there is both a narrow and a broad meaning when we use the word saint. Okay, uh, The word saint in English comes from Santa in, uh, in, in Latin, and uh, it comes from the root word for, for holiness. Um, and uh, when we look at the meaning of holiness in the, in the first place. People often think that holy people, uh, their feet do not touch the ground. They kind of like float around, levitate and things like that. And, uh, Father, we seem to be, sorry, Father, I have to interrupt you. Sorry about that. I think there is some static on your microphone. Perhaps oh, okay. you want to pack it and pack in again. I'm oh, sorry. Yeah, because it seems like your microphone is also floating above ground and we can't, we can't seem, there seems to be some static on it. Yeah, but while okay. you try to plug and unplug, perhaps I can read some of the comments from our viewers on Facebook. Is this, got some is this of better? Our is this better now? Oh, no, still... I can still, there's still some static. 
Um, okay. Let, let you can remove the maybe you can remove this. and just use the, the microphone from your computer. Okay. Fine. Is this yeah. better? Meanwhile, we've got some of our, our friends who have actually joined in through Catholic at home and are wishing us a good morning. Good morning to you, Elvin, Angie, Neville, Timothy, of course, Father Clarence. Thanks so much for tuning in. Clara, good morning to you and everyone. Francis, thanks so much for tuning in. Fabiola, Philomena, hi everyone who is tuning in. Do drop us a message and tell us what's your favorite saint. And perhaps if you have any question for Father Michael, we can actually address that as towards the end of this program. Father Michael, can you can you hear me loud and clear now? I, I can hear you. Uh, can you hear me? Yeah, but there, but there seems to be some static, but I think it's better. It's better now. All right. I, yeah. I'm, I'm just using the, uh, uh, the microphone. Okay. okay. Uh, um, I, you know, to the question of uh, what makes a saint, I think the first thing we need to to kind of understand is the meaning of holiness. As I said, now we often associate holiness with otherworldliness in, in human, in that sense, uh, something. And, uh, well, there is a certain truth to that, and yet um, it, it needs to be kind of unpacked. So in a very simple way, holy means to set apart uh, for the use of God, okay, to be set apart from the profane, from what is ordinary, and in a way we can explain that it is something extraordinary. Like for example, you would not use the word hero for just any ordinary person, because when you use it in, in, in a very general sense, broadly to speak of everyone as being a hero, uh, the word loses its meaning. So it is something which is extraordinary, set apart uh, from the rest. But in, in our Christian understanding holiness, that being set apart is for a purpose, is to be consecrated, set apart from God. And so when we talk about saints in that sense, uh, and we talk about the life of holiness, uh, we can kind of like uh, separate it into two categories. One, which is a little bit more narrow, which I believe will be the topic that we will be discussing today. And another one on a very broad sense, uh, which is covered by your theme. You know, when I first saw this, I was just telling Father Clarence, I said, it reminds me of Toys R Us, okay? And in a way, some of our family authors do look like Toys R Us, you know, instead of all those little small images of, of super, uh, super beings and things like that, heroes. You know, in fact, we, we have our whole uh, plethora, we have our whole pantheon of saints uh, decorating our, our altars. So, in a broad sense, let's start with the broad sense. The word saint was used by, by St. Paul, in his, in his letters. Like for Sorry, because I have to interrupt you again. Sorry, I think the static is back. Um, and I think our technical audio support is perhaps uh, requesting that Father, if we just log in again, perhaps sign off and log in again, because I think the static has actually worsened in the last couple of minutes. Okay, let me try. Yeah, and... sure. So in the meantime, now. sure. Okay. Thanks, Father. So in the meantime, perhaps I can actually go to some of the comments that our viewers of Catholics at home have actually left us on uh, uh, Facebook and also our social platform. Let's see, who do we have here? We have got Michael, good morning all, peace to our Lord Jesus Christ, from Kapong. Ah, Father, one of your parishioners. Naturally, St. Francis, St. Francis Xavier. Yes, I actually have friends, and I'm sure most of you who are tuning to this program either are named after saints or uh, perhaps no friends who were named after saints. So tell us, um, what is your favorite saint and why? Perhaps a little bit of a story, if you have any sharing you'd like to share with us this morning at Catholics at Home. 
Uh, once again, today we are actually talking about Saints RS. This episode is pretty special because we'll be featuring Saints and we're going to be talking to Father Michael about why Saints are important and how it can be actually relevant to our contemporary lives. Um, I think in these precarious times, we need more Saints than ever to actually intercede and to actually pray for us as we work through this challenging year for everyone. Angie, yes, tuning in from Stafford, Church of the Good Shepherd, Cecilia. Good morning, Jonathan. Good morning back at you, Cecilia. Angel here says, Angel from SFA Chiraf. My favorite saint is St. Therese of Lisieux. Good vibes, indeed. Um, I think St. Therese is one of the saints that um, most people pray to. Uh, if there is actually any help that's needed for intercession. So continue to let us know what are your favorite saints and tell us a bit as to why uh, they are your favorite saints. Angela Vincent, SFX PJ, praise God from whom all blessings flow. Saints of God, come to our aid always. Amen. Christina, good morning, Padre. Yes, we seem to have some comments also from our uh, viewers who have actually commented that perhaps the sound from Father Mike's uh, Microphone wasn't actually that clear. Father Michael, you're back. Can you hear me? Okay, I can hear you. Uh, is there yes. still? Perfect. It's Perhaps crystal it's clear. Of... You must you have actually, in between, between, gotten one of the saints to intercede, whoever the saint of audiovisual is, to help intercede. Well, could be some demonic infestation. Oh, no. So just now, right before you locked off and signed in again, you were just talking about. Um, it's actually, you know, being a saint is somewhat like being a hero and what it means to be consecrated and it's not supposed to be a title or reference to just anyone or everyone. So perhaps you would like to pick, pick up from there, Father. All right. Thank you. Sorry. Sorry about that. Some technical issues. Um, so St. Paul uh, used the phrase saint to refer to all Christians. So it was interchangeable with the word Christian. And I think uh, till today, many of our Protestant our separated brethren, uh, they continue to use saints in that regard. So when they address the church, they address, they don't say brothers and sisters in Christ, they say, oh, saints of God, uh, following the tradition of Paul when he uses those words. And uh, it's interesting because when Paul uses that word, when he addresses the Christians as saints, he connects it with the idea of the church as the church of God. And uh, he sees in this a continuation from the Old Testament in the Old Testament, the kahal of Yahweh, the assembly of God, the, the people of Israel were gathered together. They were assembled together as God's people. They were, uh, in a way, a, a priestly nation, a royal priesthood, words that were used subsequently by St. Peter in his epistle. And so the Christians took on that particular theme and expanded upon it that the church now, the ecclesia, is also the kahal of the Lord. It is the assembly of God, the assembly of God. And we are all called in that sense to be saints, members of this assembly of God, members of this community gathered together to be a priestly people, to offer worship to God. So uh, in a very broad sense, all of us then, we can say that we are saints. All right. Now, if we were to narrow it to a, to a more uh, narrow kind of a definition of of what a saint is, and, and this is our common understanding of a saint in, in, in modern context, would be someone who, who is already with God in heaven. That's a very simple definition, all right? Yeah. Uh, what we would describe it as beatific vision. 
You see, now what we see is we cannot see God face to face. We can only see God sacramentally, first in the person of Jesus Christ and through the sacraments. It is a mediated form of seeing of God. But in heaven, uh, there are no longer any mediation. Of course, it would not be a sensible form of seeing. It's not seeing with using our physical eyes. Yeah. Uh, it would be described as a kind of a contemplation, an immediate contemplation of God, that there will no longer be any barriers. There will be this direct uh, knowledge and understanding of God. And because of this direct understanding of God, there will also be this perfect communion of love with God. So a saint is basically someone in heaven who, who is now experiencing beatific vision. So this is a more narrow kind mm -hmm. of a definition. But actually, both the broad and the narrow definitions are connected because we are all saints in progress. So one yeah. of the ideas that has come to the fore, again, taking themes from the Old Testament, come to the fore in the Second Vatican Council is to describe the church as a pilgrim community. And when you talk about a pilgrim community, it means that we are on a move. There is progress, there is development. So we are progressing from here. When we look at ourselves, sometimes I think most of us will, would not acknowledge that we are saints, okay? Most yeah. of the time, if someone will say, hey, you are a saint, you, we would immediately, not because of false humility, but because we do recognize our own foibles, we all recognize our own limitations and sinfulness, we will say, no, 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 I'm not a sinner. More likely, I'm a saint. Sorry, I'm not a saint. I'm a sinner. Sinner, yeah. I would say that all of us are saints in progress. The Second Vatican Council also speaks of baptism as that very starting point. And it use, uses another phrase, the universal call to holiness, which means that at baptism, all of us are called to be saints. And uh, we do so because of the grace of God. Now, how do you become a saint? Again, uh, what's a saint and what makes you a saint and things like that? Firstly, we can't make ourselves saints in the sense that, well, yeah. we play a part in that. It is True, Father Philip always, always said that we are all saints, right? But you rightly pointed out, we are all saints in progress. And I really like the, the whole notion that there's a universal call to holiness and and you know we we all would like to aspire to be in the likeness of the saints um and i think you know sometimes if i can just share a bit of a personal anecdote like you pointed out you know sometimes when people say you are such a saint i also think that sometimes they could not mean well when they say that um i think parents would tell their children don't behave like a saint because i know you are not you know so so I think in, in, in modern day, that the word saint has sometimes also been misconstrued. But perhaps you can actually share with us, Father Michael, um, what it means to be in this you know, universal call to holiness that, that you are referring to, that you're talking about. You, uh, you know, we, as you said, I think modern society today, and, and, and it has in, in a way impacted even our our. Catholic sensibilities, the way Catholics think and feel. You know, when someone tries to be holy, uh, immediately you will get a reprimand from your friends or someone else. Hey, don't try to be so holy. Holy moly. Yes, you know, all exactly. these terms mock you for your holiness. Yeah. And in a sense, people are actually saying, if you want to be human, you have to be less than holy. You have to be a sinner in order to be human. And we, we are actually rejoicing the fact that we are sinners. All right? And, and you will sometimes hear this quite frequently. And I'm not just talking, say, for example, from, from just normal people, people who are living terrible lives. But sometimes you even get it in your Sunday school class. You may even get it over the pulpit and things like that. Don't try to be so holy, you know, being holy moly and things like that. Uh, I would say that there is, there is this skewed understanding of holiness 
And in fact, there is a reversal of the gospel message of holiness. Today, I would say saints are often vilified and villains are canonized. That's it. All right. Just look at our popular culture and, 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 and you will see this taking place in popular culture today. You, we traditionally we have this thing about heroes. Like, OK, we, yeah, we, yeah. we sort of deify books and in uh, and in the and perhaps in the movies and things like that. But what is happening today is, well, the the so-called diabolic is being is being canonized. You know, so the heroes are Lucifer is a hero, uh, you know. Creatures from 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 hell are heroes. Yep. Uh, Correct. Even for example, you know, celebrating certain characters from Halloween as an example, as, as treating them as a hero. Yeah, 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 yeah. I, I, well, I think Halloween has has a different context to it because Halloween is basically the tradition of the people mocking evil. Right? That evil isn't really that powerful or, or scary. So Halloween is it's 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 nothing like what's going on today. What's going on today is that we see uh, the good being mocked, all right? And in many of these movies and many of the stories, even science fiction, fantasy stories, you have the equivalent of the church. They may not call it the church, but they have something that, that looks very much like the church. You have these characters of these uh, so-called uh, leaders of, of religious bodies dressed up like a bishop. Of course, they're not mm -hmm. saying the Catholic, but obviously you know what they're trying to say, lah. you know? Yeah. <laughs> the church that people whom we generally associate with holiness are actually the villains. And then rather, on the other side, the real heroes are the so-called anti-heroes, the, the, whether it's demonic or the, what we consider mm. evil people, they are really the good guys. And so today, maybe as much as you say that there is this fascination with holiness and with the saints and things like that, I think among the, the older generation, but we begin to see among the younger generation, I consider myself the young generation, though I'm past 50 already. You know, in a, among the younger generation, um, there is a decrease in terms of, of reverence for, for devotion for the saints and things like that. You know, and uh, in fact, we mock. One of, one of the most common things that we see today is mockery, a mockery of the saints. And, it, and in fact, in terms of the commandments of God, taking the Lord's name in vain, extends to mockery of things which are holy, including the saints and all that. And so I, I think Pope St. John Paul II fully understood this. And that's why, for two reasons, he, he was one of those who, who canonized more saints than any other pope, uh, although yeah. he was accused of being a, a saint factory, yeah? because he was like, rolling them off the mill. But it was, first of all, to inspire humanity with this model again. Holiness is not something to be mocked or to be relegated to the level of you know, being inhumane, but rather it is the true model of humanity. And on the other hand, it is to restore a sense of reverence in our society, something which we have lost. Okay. Thanks, Father, for that. I think now we're talking about this, right? I mean, I'm curious to find out whether do saints appear only in the Catholic doctrine? I mean, there are Christian denominations that do not prescribe to our devotion of saints. And how, how what is your thought on that? Well, um, you know, when we talk about other Christians, it's it's they are not a monolithic group. It's not like they're all they all share the same beliefs. So that there is a whole wide range of beliefs. Uh, we have the Eastern Orthodox. Uh, they too believe in the saints. Uh, in terms of the manner in which they recognize saints, over the centuries has 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 shaped has uh, 
or rather we have kind of like moved away. We have become more um, uh, formalized in terms of the way we, we recognize someone as a saint yeah. in heaven. They, they follow very much the, the method in the, in the early church, which is basically by popular uh, acceptance, popular acclamation, and to be confirmed by the bishop. So it's, it's a little bit more uh, less rigid than, than mm -hmm. ours, which is more formal. Uh, maybe I will talk about that afterwards. And then we okay. have the Protestants. As I said, again, it's, it's not a monolithic group. So if you talk yeah. about some of the mainline Protestants, which are the, the, the Christians of the, the period of the Reformation, the Lutherans, the Anglicans, and then subsequently some of the other churches that broke away from them, uh, that, that seems to be, well, in, in varying degrees, some form of veneration of saints and, and, and an understanding of saints. Sometimes a little bit closer to, to our Catholic understanding, depending on whether use, I'm, I'm using an Anglican terminology, whether they are more high church. When you speak of mm. some Protestant group as high church, they, they are, tend to be a bit more Catholic, right? sometimes more Catholic than Catholics. Uh, yeah. Low church tends to move away from all these things, uh, a renunciation of, of, of Catholic sensibilities, Catholic ethos. So uh, some of them, well, will revere the saints and treat the saints in the same way as we do, as intercessors, as models of holiness. Some would, would use the word saints and refer to all everyone as saints. So the saints include those who are dead, as well as uh, the, the saints who are living. So mm. they use the Pauline notion of saint. Um, remember that most Protestants, like I said, the majority of the Protestants, they're a small group of the Anglicans reject the idea of purgatory, so the souls in purgatory. So sometimes they even use the words the souls in purgatory as uh, they interchange it with the dead. And so the dead are also the saints and they pray for the dead. Mm. So the saints are not someone who do not need a prayer. Sometimes you continue to pray for the dead with some of yeah. these Protestant groups. So in varying degrees, uh, some form of veneration, uh, of course, there are certain things which, which they, they, they find offensive from the way in which Catholics uh, venerate the saints. Uh, for example, in terms of the use of images and pictures and mm. paintings like that. All right. I think we, we need to always clarify when we, when we have questions like this from, from our separated brethren, from the Protestants. You know, Do you worship the saints? Do you worship Mary? And we make, need to make a distinction between two, two actions or two ways of dealing with, with God and the saints. First of all, in terms of God, we, we use the Greek word latria, which means adoration, worship. So worship, adoration is reserved for God and God alone, okay? We cannot worship anything else. That would be idolatry. And we agree with the Protestants. If you're, you start worshiping Saint Jude, or you start worshiping even the Blessed Virgin Mary, that would be idolatry, making that person an equal of God. But we use another word, dulia. Julia is reverence, respect, and honor. And we honor the things in which we generally wish to emulate and imitate. They are heroes. And, and we see the culture of Julia present even in secular society, right? We have heroes, we have celebrities. They all yeah. arise from this, this, this very human thing of Julia, of reverencing something and uh, respecting something, honoring something, because there, there are certain values we see in this person which, which inspires this, so dulia. And of course, hyperdulia, the highest of all forms of reverence for creatures of God is reserved for Mary. Now, the church says this, that when we offer reverence 
and honor to the saints and to Mother Mary. We are actually doing the will of God and we are worshiping God. Think about that. So the, the less reverence oh. we pay to the saints and to Mother Mary, we, we are actually doing injustice to God. It is God who yeah. is insulted. All right. For example, if, if uh, you know, I always use this term with a friend of mine, I say, you know, love by extension. So his friends become my friends because if his friends love him, because I'm his good friend, I eventually get loved by him. All right. So yeah. you're loved by extension. So generally, you try to love the people whom your so-called closest friend or your loved ones would love. You will attempt to do it. Even you may not like the person, but you will say you will attempt to love the person. Because, you know, the moment that you begin to hate the person, you are doing an injustice to the person whom you call friend or the person whom you love. And so the, the saints, the reverence to the saints is, is precisely this. It, it does not distract from our love of God. In fact, it enhances our love of God. Because when we surround ourselves with a devotion to the saints, it is surrounding ourselves with holiness. And by surrounding ourselves with holiness, when the saints are consecrated, they are set apart from God. We're actually thinking of God when we think of the saints. They are, they are kind of reminders to us that God is present. And the saints of God too, there's another element to them that as St. Paul says, you know, it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. So we see in the saints actually the vision of Christ. We see in the saints Christ they no longer live. It is no longer St. Francis, St. Teresa, St. Claire, or whatever it is who lives. It is Christ who lives in them. And they provide, provide us with this picture, this beautiful kaleidoscope vision of Christ himself, that in the saints, we see Christ. They make Christ visible to us in the most tangible, real way. Often we say, you know, how, does this, how is this relevant to us when we read the Gospels? How is this relevant yeah. to us? Pope Benedict had this to say in his uh, motto proprio porta fide in the year of the faith. He says, the best commentary of the Bible are the saints. Quite interesting, yeah? The best yeah, commentary, you just dig up some books, you know, I've got a whole long list of books up here to, to just impress visitors to my office. Uh, <laughs> right, everything, you know? But I say the best commentary are the saints, okay? Not some book, not some, some library article, uh, or something that you can Google search on, on the internet. But the saints provide us with a commentary of the gospel. They provide us with a commentary of the life of Christ. Absolutely. I love that, Father Michael. I think you've actually pointed out something quite important, that things does not distract, but it enhances the love of God um, surrounded by holiness, and, and that Christ who lives, it is Christ who lives in them. I think that's a, that's a beautiful explanation. And I think that actually... Uh, hit a nerve with our audience and our viewers um, at Catholics at Home because we've got Gita who said this is actually a great topic. Thank you, team, and thank you, Father uh, Father Michael, for talking about this. Uh, and we continue to have also viewers who are tuning to us from Sacred Heart KL. Hi, Vivian. Uh, Suen from the Cathedral of Holy Spirit, Penang. Uh, Sharon from Assumption. Um, and we continue to have others who have actually continued to share the saints um, that they, they most uh, they most enjoy or like to actually pray to. Um, we have Vivian who said, my favorite saint is Francis of Assisi. Um, and then we have my favorite saint from Dylan is St. Anthony of Padua. And we also have someone who's actually uh, tuning to say that, you know, uh, my favorite saint is St. Teresa of Calcutta or commonly known as Mother Teresa. 
perhaps she's a contemporary figure that we can relate to easily, seeing someone who has carried out so much of God's mission. And this is coming in from Suen. Thank you so much, everyone, who has dropped in your comment. I mean, coming back to, to this topic of saints, Father, um, and we are talking about the importance of saints to the faith, I mean, as an exception of our conversation. I mean, simply put, after all the explanation that you actually shared, right, about the saintliness and the heroes that we need in the form of a saint, so why do we need saints, for example? If, if, we, if we have, I mean, more than 10,000 saints, right, do we need more saints, Father? Now, it's not a question of uh, do we have enough saints. As we said, all of us are saints in, in progress, okay? So if you say that we have enough saints, then all of us are damned, condemned. <laughs> because when you say that someone is not a saint, actually what you're saying is you're making a, an announcement, a proclamation, just like when the church canonizes a person, the church is not making a saint. The church cannot make saints. The church is merely making an official, uh, conf it's confirming that this person is already in heaven. All right? That's what yeah. the church does. So when we say that, do we have enough saints? I think we would, we hope that all of us can become saints, right? Because to say that if anyone is not a saint in that sense, uh, whether that saint is recognized, officially confirmed by the church or not recognized by the church, that's why we have the this great solemnity of all saints to cover all the, the so-called Dan Lain Lain, uh, Dan Lain Lain, yeah. which doesn't fall yeah. under our category. They, they fall out of our radar, and, uh, right? Pope yeah. Francis, in his recent document, also uh, Gaudete et Exotet, Exotet, Exotate, said, you know, there are lots of so-called so -called hidden saints that we are not familiar with, you know, and it could be yeah. the people who, who are in our homes, in our workplace. So it's not like all right, do we have enough saints? Can we just put a stop to all of this? No, it shouldn't be the case. Yeah. Every time when, when a saint is being canonized, it gives us hope. It gives us hope that, yes, one day I too want to be in the ranks of heaven. But the moment we say that we don't want another saint is to say that, okay, they can all go to hell. That's literally mm. what we have to do. They can all go to hell because hell is a place where people are not saints. Even those in purgatory are already on their way to sainthood. All right, they need to be purified. They are on their way to heaven. Uh, purgatory is not a, a, a waiting room where they are sorted out, okay? Uh, some will go to heaven, some will go to hell. No. Purgatory it's, so it's not like a sorting hat at Hogwarts. Purgatory is the place where they are purified to prepare them for that final entry into heaven. That That's it. So, uh, yeah. We and so I think it's also, yeah, so I think, I mean, I agree with you that we should, we should, there, there is never going to be enough saints, and I think there's a lot of examples, and like you pointed out, Father, there is also a lot of saints that we don't really know of. Um, and I think that's why in the Apostles' Creed, we, we talk about the communion of saints. Perhaps they actually can shed some light on that, Father. Like, what is the significance of saints that they are actually found in the Apostles' Creed? Okay. Uh, going back to your earlier question, and then I'll lead into the Apostles' sure. Creed is this, that uh, the church sees the saints and our devotion to the saints uh, in, in various ways. The first one is in terms of being models of holiness to us, that they, they possess a certain heroic degree of the theological virtues and the human virtues. Uh, so back to your first question, how do you become a saint? Uh, actually, yeah. the church doesn't make saints, that's one thing. It is God who makes saints with 
our cooperation. So there's two things of it. There's God who has to give us the, the graces, God who gives us the Holy Spirit that allows us to become saints. But unlike uh, the Calvinists uh, who, who think that we are all totally depraved and, and cannot make any contribution to our own sanctification, the Catholic Church believes that with the grace of God, with the power of the Holy Spirit, and with human beings cooperating by, by exercising the theological virtues, faith, hope, and charity, and, and the cardinal virtues, you know, prudence, uh, uh, fortitude, temperance, uh, justice, and, and all the other human virtues. When we practice these things and with the assistance of the sacraments, which continue to channel into us the grace of God, we can all become saints. All right. So the first thing is that the saints provide us with a model of holiness. We look at them as examples of how to imitate Christ. So we imitate the saints because the saints have perfectly imitated Christ. So sometimes yeah. I've I, I gotten this comments, you know, sometimes when I give uh, talks on, the, on scripture, people have come up to me and say, you know, Father, it's impossible to follow Christ. It's impossible to imitate him. You know, how can we do all these things? Why well, he says, well, how about if I provide you with an example? A saint would be that example. That the saints have successfully, they have struggled, they have certainly struggled, there are times they have failed, but eventually they were able to imitate Christ. And if that is possible for them, then it should be for us too. So they are model of holiness to us precisely because they model to us the ability to be able to imitate Christ. They model to us the virtues that they practice in cooperation with God's grace. The second thing that the church provides uh, provides us with saints is intercessors. Uh, they pray for us. And this leads eventually to what we're going to talk about in the Apostles' Creed, the communion of saints. Yeah. Now, when we think about the communion of saints, the first thing, I think it's, it's, it's a common uh, misunderstanding among Catholics. Now, many Catholics, good Catholics, Catholics also, Catholics from young, from, from I won't say from, from birth, birth yeah. from infancy, <laughs> right? Infancy, you yep. were baptized as an infant. What often think the communion of saints is referring to Mary and all the saints in heaven, all gathered up in heaven. But actually, the communion of saints include us. When we talk about the communion of saints, we are talking about the mystical body of Christ, the church as a whole. That's why it is improper for us to say we are the church. That statement is filled with hubris. It's arrogant. It's actually to say that, you know, this is all you see. What you see is what you get. We are part of the church. We are not the whole church. What is the whole church? The communion of saints. So we see three stages or three parts or three modes of the church. The first part is that of the living. And traditionally, we have been called the church militant. Because in this world, we strive. We struggle with our own sinfulness, with our own limitations. We strive with sin, with temptation, with death. And then we have the church suffering, the souls in purgatory. So also stay uh, 2nd of November. And then we have the church triumphant, Mary and the saints in heaven. Right, so you see in this beautiful thing that we are not three separate churches, we are one church. And if you remember what I said about the church being a pilgrim church, a word that came to us from the Second Vatican Council, we come to realize that we are in a this certain movement. So the Apostles' Creed recognizes this, it mentions the Church of Christ under the third section of the Creed, which is I believe in the Holy Spirit. All right. And then it moves immediately into the church. And then it moves into the communion of saints because they are all interconnected. 
How do we become the church? It is true, the power of the Holy Spirit. And what is the church? It is the communion of saints. And we also will see this, and we would hear it if you pay attention to it, every time we celebrate the Mass. At every Mass, the most important part of the Mass is the Eucharistic prayer. All right? And in the Eucharistic prayer, there's a part where we offer the petition, the prayers of the, of the church. And every time when we offer the prayers of the church, it's not just, oh, listen to us, Lord, listen to us. There is the mention of the saints, of Mary and the saints. There is the mention of the dead, the souls in purgatory, the faithful departed. Yeah. And there is yeah. the mention of the church of the living in communion with the Pope and the bishop. So in the liturgy itself, we see even an affirmation of this truth that we, that we are not just individuals separated. You know, now we are living in times when we are asked to socially distance ourselves. Yeah. And we say that this is the new normal. As far as Christians are concerned, this can never be the new normal because eternal distancing, there's another word for it. It's called hell. That's why lots of people are going crazy. <laughs> All right. Whereas church, the church which presents to us the vision of communion, the communion of the saints, the communion of God, it's not about distancing, it's about communion. So if heaven is about communion, hell is about separation and distancing. All right. And so Well, Father, I'll be very careful when I use the word social distancing moving forward. Huh? I'll be very careful when I use the term social distancing because okay. you pointed out that you know social distancing yeah. is, is is equivalent to hell. And and I agree with you that we we cannot accept this new norm. Um and I think you've also pointed out as to the importance of the communion of saints and how three parts, uh, the, the three different sections that you've actually explained of the prayer. Um, and I think, again, you know, we've got a lot of our viewers have actually shared and given us their comments to say that you have actually provided a, an awesome explanation from Timothy. He says, awesome explanation of the reverence for saints versus the worship. Um, and Irene said, good explanation, Father. Hopefully we will be able to answer truthfully why we pray to the saints when questioned in the near future. Um, and I think, and I think a lot of them continue to share the saints that they pray to, and and why they continue to to like them. And I think um, it's it's really important that we cover this section because I think Father, you've actually pointed out a lot of the, the parts that we don't seem to quite understand about saint or sainthood, um, and maybe a little bit about the the process of of being a saint. Like you pointed out, that saints are actually not appointed by by the church; it's actually by God. And perhaps you can actually share with us in terms of um, to be a saint, right? If all of us are to aspire to be a saint, when, when we pass on from this physical earth, what actually, what process is required for, for a person to be a saint? Does the church have a process of verification and, and how long does it take before, before someone can be announced as a, or beatified as a saint? Yeah, I think we need to be very careful when it comes to just merely, you know, as much as we, we believe sometimes people whom we know and love once, they live very holy lives, they live, you know, and, and we would immediately want to say that they are in heaven. So remember when we make, a, and when we say something like this person is heaven, what is really happening is it's, it's canonization. And, uh, you know, one of the interesting things we find, and I, and I can understand it, you know, we, because it provides us with consolation, that when our loved ones die, we immediately want to say that they are in heaven, all right? Now, one of the dangers of doing this is that we are jumping the gun in the process of canonization. We are assuming that we have the power to do something like that. 
Secondly, but I don't think that's the most dangerous thing. The most dangerous thing is that when we canonize someone, we actually stop doing what is required of us. Our duty is to pray for the dead. A spiritual work of mercy, one of the most important spiritual works of mercy is to pray for the dead. And if someone is in heaven, St. Pio, Padre Pio, Mother Teresa, if yeah. they are really in heaven, do we pray for them? We don't pray for them anymore. We ask them to pray for us. And so when we begin to loosely declare people as, okay, this person is heaven, this person is heaven, we kind of dismiss them and say, we don't really need to pray, pray for them anymore, which is really... Which is untrue, yeah. It is our duty to do so. We have to pray for them because we will not know until God answers. Okay, now coming back to the process of canonization. Well, it, it has experienced um, a development from the... In the early centuries, those who were considered to be saints, though the word more commonly used was martyrs of the church, those who died for the faith of the church, the faith, the Catholic faith, for their faith in Christ, who were martyred, who were killed for that reason, uh, were, were the ones who were considered saints. All right. And there was no need for any proclamation. It was just merely the people themselves seeing in the death of this person, holding so faithfully until they are very deaf that this person is a saint. So many of the early saints did not go through the whole process as what we would see in. Uh, Kalo uh, Akutis and things like that, going through this whole process where you have to go from this investigation, that investigation. The, by virtue of their death, it was sufficient proof la, for the early Christians. Then after the time of persecution, where there was hardly any um, martyrdom, all right? Martyrdom still took place in some far-flung places, but not in, in the Roman Empire. And during this time, we had these, this new thing called confessors, people who suffered for the faith, who defended the faith, who, who, but they did not die, all right? So as a result of that, from martyrs, extended to, to confessors. Now, this was a little bit more difficult. Why? Because you would have to look at their teachings to see that there is nothing heretical there. You would have to examine their lives to see that they had been faithful. Well, maybe they have been a little bit naughty at the beginning, but at the end of their life, they had been really faithful to God. They had repented and they did all these things. It required a bit more investigation. So the bishops started to tell the people, oh, you, you can't just say, okay, this person is the yeah. same. We need yeah. to investigate. And so the bishops began to take that responsibility of investigating and confirming uh, what the people were already saying, that someone is already in heaven. And then eventually, this was reserved to the Holy See, to the Pope. And this came about quite, quite later, maybe around the beginning of the 13th century. It started around the 10th century, under the 13th century, where the Pope used to reprimand bishops and say, you know, you just can't go around and making saints and everyone that you like, you make saints. One of my favorite figures is this one of uh, Emperor Leo the, the Sixth, who was married four times, uh, got excommunicated by the church. He was the emperor, the Byzantine emperor, got excommunicated by the Patriarch of Constantinople. Quite an interesting and colorful figure. And he yeah. has his image there right on the, the main door of Hagia Sophia, all right? They're placating Jesus with a gift, all right? Asking for mercy. The reason is because people are questioning whether he was another blue beard, whether he actually killed his wives in order to get married again and again and again, all right? And wow. uh, his first wife was supposed to be very holy, okay? Chephora. And when she died, but he had no love for her because they slept apart. She slept on the floor. She was like an ascetic like that, you know, trying to do penance for the husband, hopefully. 
when she died, he wanted to build a church in her honor and name it after her. And the patriarch in the whole church said, you can't do this. You can't just declare somebody a saint. All right. So you have figures like that. So eventually, Rome reserved to itself the right to be to, to, to look into this whole process of making a judgment because that's what canonization is about. It's not making a saint. It's making a judgment whether someone is already in heaven. So the, the, the current uh, process started in around 17th century until today. There has been changes to it. The most recent one will be, I think, 1983, where it moves to a certain process. It is initiated, first of all, by the local church, whether it is the bishop of a diocese or if it's if it is someone that comes from a congregation, the congregation will also try to move this case to a bit of investigation, come up with a dossier and send it to this ministry in, in Rome that is in charge of this, the Congregation for the Cause of Saints. Uh, and they will look at that, investigate further to determine whether the person actually from his life or her life, from the things that she taught, wrote and things like that, whether this person exhibited heroic virtue. All right. So the first stage, when the bishop or the religious congregation starts it, they are called a servant, the servant of the Lord. And then when it is taken up and accepted, the dossier is accepted by the, the congregation and confirmed, then the person becomes venerable. That's when uh, a greater study is done. Prayer cards are printed. And, and that's when you, you begin to, to share prayer cards. You can't have a feast. You can't have a church. Why prayer cards? Because this is one of the part of the requirements of canonization. You see, if it is a judgment, the church is acting as a judge. You need to have witnesses. So the witnesses come from the living and they also come from those who are not living here among us. And the greatest witness, of course, of all is God. God is the supreme witness for the cause of a saint. And how is that done? That is done by a miracle. So you need one miracle. It has to be tested, checked, uh, examined, yep. before you move to the stage of beatification, which is what happened to uh, our most recent blessed, uh, Carlo Atrutis. Yeah? And yep. then before they move into the last stage of canonization, so when you are when you are beatified, the church is already saying it's worthy of belief. We are saying that you can believe in this, that this person is already in heaven. So Carlo Atrutis, the church is saying, yeah, he's believed he's in heaven. But to really reinforce that again, to say person is a saint, removing doubt require two more miracles. Right. So God has to act as a witness again. So when you pray wow. to a saint, actually, this is what happens. People often say you pray to a saint because the saint will answer your prayer. When you pray to the saint, it works this way. God answers the prayer. Then you know the saint is in heaven. Wow, okay. that's, that's beautifully put, Father. I think I think that that is actually very detailed, but I think that's really insightful. As as a person who has always been very intrigued by the process, I think you've actually put it down in a very simple manner that all of us could understand. And I think there's actually a question coming in from Joseph Lopez: um, Is sainthood the ultimate perfection to holiness? Would you like to take that question, Father? Um, going back to the Baltimore Catechism, the second question, yeah. Why did God make you? All right. I think some of the older Catholics will always remember the answer to this. It's you, you memorize it by rote. And it is, we are created to know, 
to know God, to love him, serve him, and be with him in paradise forever. That speaks of, of, of the vocation that all of us have received. So when God created us, God created us to be with him in paradise forever. So what does it mean to be in paradise? It means to be a saint. So is sainthood the ultimate goal? Well, the ultimate goal is God, and sainthood is to be in paradise with God forever. All right? So in a way, sainthood, yes. Uh, but to, to understand, it's not just putting on a halo. Okay, I, I earn my marks just like I earn my stripes and uh, uh, my trophy. No. It's basically God is the destination. God is the ultimate uh, uh, goal of holiness. In fact, in the, uh, in the Second Vatican Council, in Lumen Gentium chapter 40, it speaks of this as Christ. Uh, you know, in the Sermon of the Mount, Christ himself said, you shall be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. So God is the ultimate goal. And Lumen Gentium says that Jesus himself, the whole Sermon of the Mount is about Jesus. Jesus himself is the teacher and the model of that perfection. And he is the author and the consummator of the life of holiness. So ultimately, our goal is to Jesus. Our goal is Jesus. And because our goal is Jesus, our goal is also God. And by extension, that's what a saint is all about. All right. So yeah, the ultimate goal of holiness is not just sainthood for itself, for its own sake, but ultimately union with God through Christ. Thank you, Father. I think there's also another question that came in from um, one of our viewers, uh, Nicholas Father, please share on purgatory as part of the final stage of sainthood. I think that ties back to the earlier conversation that we had about the process of, uh, of being um, canonized. Perhaps you can actually share a bit more details about what purgatory is and what do we do as, as, as living people and what can we do for those who are actually in purgatory? Yeah. So purgatory, to understand purgatory, one must understand again the, the tradition and the custom of praying for the dead. Uh, it comes from the Old Testament, actually, from the book of Maccabees, all right? Uh, we, we just heard that in, a, in our office of reading, I think, yesterday or the day before, in which in this battle with the Greek army, some of the, the Jewish uh, so-called rebe rebels uh, fell. They, they, they were killed. And as they were trying to clean up the... The, the area and the corpse and to give them a final burial, they realized they were all carrying amulets, okay, pagan amulets or some kind of superstition uh, um, thing that they, they, they had on their person in order to ward off evil, uh, but which was superstitious and therefore a sin to God. So, but what is interesting about this is what Judas Maccabee says. He says that, you know, we need, it is now our duty to pray for them, to pray for the dead. It's interesting that much later during the time of Martin Luther, he went he removed this entire book because of his reference to praying for the dead. So why would one pray for the dead? Because if a person is in heaven, there's no need to pray for them. Mm -hmm. Correct? There's no need to pray for anyone who is in heaven. The, the saints in heaven do not need our prayers. <laughs> we pray to them. We ask them for our prayers. We do not pray for them. How about the souls in hell? What is hell? Hell is eternal separation. It is not just lifetime sentence where you can, lifetime sentence today is maybe 20 years, then you can be released. Good behavior, maybe 15 years, and then you can be released. That means there's a short period of time. It's not for eternity. Hell is eternal separation from God. So no matter how much you pray, the, the souls in hell cannot, be, cannot benefit from your prayers. 
So why would we pray for the dead? Hmm. It has to be resolved by the fact that there are some people who are not in hell, neither are they in heaven, but would benefit from our prayers. And here we're talking about the souls in purgatory. All right. You see, in life itself, part of the, the process of purification, of sanctification, the life of holiness, uh, the saints and the, 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 the mystical writers often describe it as passing through three stages. First, the, the, the phase of purgation, of cleansing, of purification. The case of enlightenment, we come to kind of recognize and understand the will of God. And finally, the last one is the unitive stage, which is we come into communion with God. And you're not speaking just about this life. Then in this life, we move through these stages. Huh? We have to do penance. We go to sacrament of reconciliation, penance. We, we, we confess our sins. We, we change our ways. We amend our lives. Then we, we begin to study the word of God. We study the catechism. And we come to know more and more about God. And we come to love him. We, we experience mystical union with him here. But those three stages is actually a microcosm of the so-called three stages of the church, three parts of the church, the church militant, the church suffering, and the church triumphant. So purgatory is this place where God continues to purify us because I think for, the, for most of us, if not 99.9% oh, of, of us would have gone to our deathbed still with sins unless we died with perfect contrition. All right. So this church says, when you die in perfect contrition, just like the, the, the repentant thief next to Jesus on the cross, today you are in paradise. You will be with me in paradise forever. Okay. So there are occasions where this happens, but most of us die with, with little baggages, sinful baggages. And it is in purgatory that God continues to work. God completes and perfects the work that he has begun in us. So purgatory is a place where God completes his work. And when we pray, we are actually participating in the work of perfection. Well, we're not helping God. God doesn't need our help. All right. But God wants us to come along. It's just like when a, when a father is trying to fix his car and then his young little toddler comes along. All right. He can reach very well reach out for the spanner, but he doesn't. He calls his, his son and say, can you pass me the spanner? And, and the little son passes the spanner to his father and feels very good about it. Okay. Was that... Of real assistance? Yes, it was a real assistance. Did the father really need the son to do that? No. But the father, out of love for the son, in wishing to, to help the son grow in a responsibility of also caring for, for, for the car, in this case, chooses to allow the son to participate. So likewise, God's will is that we participate in praying for the dead for this very purpose. So purgatory is, is a place where God continues to perfect us. We cannot do that already here. Here in this life, while we are still living, we can participate in that. We can do acts of penances. We can go for, we can um, do acts where we, we gain an indulgence, uh, provided we follow all the criteria. We can grow in holiness and sanctity by, by frequenting the sacraments, by reading the word of God, through prayer, uh, through the virtues, practice of the virtues. We can do all these things while we are living. But once we're dead, Sorry. So it seems wow. quite, uh, you know, terrible to think that when at death, everything just ends and that's the end of the story. And if you think in terms of heaven, heaven 
to be in communion in God, with God, to be in his presence, one needs to be perfect. We will always fall short of that perfection at death. So how do we get there? How do we connect the dots? How do we have this trajectory from where we are? We want to be with God, but we are imperfect. In heaven, where we are supposed to be super, fully perfect, how do we get there? Well, purgatory is that, is that journey, is that process. Thank you. We get from here to there. Thanks, Father. I think, I think that's a beautiful summary of, of that question. I think that's a lot that we can actually learn. So as we're coming up to the hour, um, and we can actually bring this as the closure to this morning's informative and interactive session of saints. Um, we're talking about saints and us, right? And I can see from a lot of our comments from our Catholics at Home viewers, there were a lot of questions or there were a lot of comments about the beatification of Carlo Acutis. I mean, maybe we can we can close off this program, maybe with you, Father. What lessons can we take from this millennial saints? And what can we do to link our lives with the saints in heaven? I think uh, whether it is Carlo Artutis or any of the other saints, I think the first thing is to really read about the saint because one of the things why the church confirms in its judgment, in its prudential judgment that this person is already in heaven is because the church wishes us to emulate the life of the saint. And remember I said, when you imitate a saint, you're actually imitating Christ. So the first thing to do is to try and read up a bit more about Carlo Artutis rather than to think that he's some kind of a spiritual vending machine. Okay. Oh, oh, oh. <laughs> you know, there was this little boy in, in Brazil who had this uh, congenital disease. The mother and he prayed to there and she, he was healed, miraculous healed. Oh, okay, 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 okay. Let's, let's go and hit the button, hit the button. All right. The first thing is that we should learn more about the saints so that the saints are not reduced to some form of superstitious uh, uh, amulet, all right, that we can just mm. call on them. Yeah, they are interceding for us. But remember, who is the one answering the prayer? God answers the prayer of a saint. But they are presented to us first and foremost as, as a model. And because he is, he's a young man and he comes from our age, he's a millennial, all right, most of the saints are either old, like, you know, Mother Teresa is also, many of you know, know her in, in, during her lifetime in yep. her generation. But yet, maybe some young people may not be able to, to make a connection with that. But he was a person who was into the internet, was uh, developed websites, you know, but he had a great yes. love in Eucharist. How do we make this connection between the sacred and the profane? And I think in the person of Carlo Artutis, we, we see that happening. We see it happening that you, you can make that connection that the internet, as much as it's often a place of, 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 of grayness, uh, there's a mm. lot of gray areas. It can be a place of great temptation. Okay, uh, one of the one of my friends said, you know, you know, one of the reasons why the internet speed has been increasing and they pay, put so much investment into it is because of pornography, internet pornography, and yet it is a place also of where we can give witness to God. And Carlo Artutis shows us that precisely. That's something which is profane and sometimes even considered to be bad and negative can be subverted uh, for the good of God. We see this in the parables of the mustard seed and the leaven. The mustard seed is considered to be a parasitic plant. You, you throw it into, no intelligent person will throw it into his garden because oh, yeah. it will immediately take over the entire garden because it's a parasite. Like, and the leaven for the Jew was considered to be something impure, evil, unclean, representative of sin. And yet the amount of leaven used 
to bring it up. And Jesus uses these two examples. Why did he use them? He uses them that this is how God works. God uses what would be considered as evil and bad and subverts it for his glory. Well, that's amazing, right? That God yes. would use death. Death is the wages of sin is death. But God would use death now as the doorway to heaven. That God would use the death of his son, Jesus, on the cross as the means of a salvation. And through the fall of Adam, and we sing this at the Easter proclamation every year, the exalted, that God would take the fall of Adam in the book of Genesis and use that as occasion to send his son for our salvation. Because if Adam had not fallen, God would not have become man and we would not have Jesus. So persons like Carlo Ortutis, and I think in his life, we see this. How can you take something which is profane, mundane, something mm -hmm. which you normally do not associate with the holy and transform yeah, and make the connection vehicle for the gospel all right so and i like to encourage all the young people i'm not sure whether young people watch something like this i think generally it's more the retired people who watch okay i may be mistaken <laughs> <laughs> no father you and i are not retired <laughs> okay yeah that's it Thanks, thanks, Father Michael. And um, to all our viewers, thank you so much for all your comments. Um, and I think we have had a really, really interesting session. Um, I've been taking down notes throughout the conversation that we've had, uh, that I've had with you, Father, and it's three pages long of notes. And I'm probably going to be looking at it after this because I think I've actually learned a lot in terms of what it takes to be a saint and, and what is the difference between what we practice and what should actually be the practice of saint and what we can actually do to have the saint to intercede for us. Um, so thank you again, Father Michael, for being our speaker this morning. And perhaps we can actually get you to do a closing prayer uh, for this morning's episode of Catholics at Home. Okay, um, I'm gonna take this prayer uh, from St. Catherine of Siena. It's one of my, my favorite prayers. Uh, Catherine Siena was, um, she was uneducated. Uh, in a way, she was a lay person, though she was a tertiary, a Dominican tertiary, uh, stayed at home, and yet she was able to, to move the Pope, right? Both in terms of, of move his heart as well as his whole person from to move back from Avignon, where he was in exile, to Rome. And uh, she's considered to be a doctor of the church, one of the great reformers, um, though this is not the time of uh, the Counter-Reformation yet. And, uh, and, and it is a prayer that is very dear to me. I would like to share with you as we close off. Sure. Thank you. Thank you. All right. Name of the Father, the Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Eternal God, eternal Trinity, you are a mystery as deep as the sea, the more I search, the more I find, and the more I find, the more I search for you. But I can never be satisfied. What I receive will ever leave me desiring more. When you fill my soul, I have an ever greater hunger, and I grow more famished for your light. I desire above all to see you, the true light, as you really are. We make this prayer to Christ our Lord. Amen. Amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Father Michael. I think a lot of our viewers were quite upset when you said that only retirees are watching this program. We've got a lot yeah, of them yeah, that I put up their hands and said that they're young folks, <laughs> and there are a lot of young people. So to all of our... Young people. 
<laughs> there is hope. There is hope for the church. <laughs> yes, indeed. And to all of our viewers at home, who's tuning in to our Catholics at home, please take note that um, our next program will be a live show as well. Uh, same place, same time with Father James McTavish, who will be live next Saturday. He's based out of the Philippines, and we will be talking about Amor Amoris Letita. And we will be talking about love, marriage, and life. And we will also be talking a bit about the documentary Francesco and perhaps some of the questions that were surrounding it and also the subsequent clarification by the Vatican. So tune in to us next Saturday, same time, on Catholics at Home, which you can find us on YouTube, Spotify, as well as on Facebook. And also just a reminder, next Friday's praise session will happen at 9.30 p.m. We are having St. Paul's Chapel from Penampang, Sabah and Good Shepherd Church, KL Youth, Sabah. Like and follow our page for all the latest upcoming shows. Once again, thank you all for tuning in. Thank you, Father, for joining me this morning. Thank you, Jonathan, and thank you, everyone. Bye. Bye. God bless.